Good morning, church. Today we're going to be looking at one of the oldest questions there is. The question of where is God in the midst of our pain and suffering? You know, COVID's a great season to think about this question because it's a time where many of us and our loved ones and friends are suffering deeply and wondering about questions like this. But the reality is, this is a question we have to think about not only during COVID, but in all seasons of life, because we live in a broken world where bad things happen. And if we believe that God is good, and we believe that God is powerful, why do bad things happen? Can't God stop it? In today's passage, we're going to look at the life of Joseph, and it's going to show us that even in our worst suffering, God is working for our good. Even in our worst suffering, God is working for our good. So we're going to look at Joseph's story, Joseph's decision, Joseph's perspective, and how we can have that perspective. But before we look at the passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and you are powerful and you've given us your words so that we can know you. Pray that you would speak to us today through your word. Help us to know you more and see you more clearly. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this year, we have been going through the story of the Bible together as the church. We've started out looking at the story of creation. We saw that God made everything good. And then humanity rebelled against God. We turned from him. We chose our own ways. And chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis just so, show this spiral of humanity as we turn away from God and the, the utter hopelessness. For humanity to be able to do anything to fix our broken situation. And then we've got to Genesis 12 where we saw that God made promises to Abraham, promises to bless him, to make a great nation, to bless the world through him. And we see that God is now at work to do for humanity what we cannot do for ourselves. God is going to step in and rescue us because we cannot rescue ourselves. And as we've tracked the story through Abraham's family, we've seen again and again they're just as messed up as everyone else. They are just as much in need of God saving them because they cannot save themselves as everyone else. Even the family of promise reinforces for us this idea that only God can rescue and save humanity. And today we're looking at Genesis chapter 50 verses 15 through 21 and it's a story about a man named Joseph. And Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. If you were here last week, Joseph is the brother of Judah. He is part of the family of promise. His dad had two wives, and Joseph, he had two wives, the father had two wives and two concubines. Joseph is the firstborn son of the favorite wife, but he's son number 11 overall in the family. So, his dad looks at him as the favorite son because Joseph is the firstborn of his favorite wife. But his 10 older brothers despise Joseph because of that. And so throughout his childhood, his brothers hate him. And one day they decide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kidnap him. At first they plan to kill him, but then they say, no, 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 let's not kill our brother. Let's not have his blood on our hands. Let's sell him as a slave. He'll go down, be out of our lives forever. And then we'll just take his special clothes that dad has given him because he's dad's favorite. 
and we will kill an animal, swipe its blood all over his clothes, and tell dad that our brother, his favorite son, was eaten by a wild animal. And so they do this. They sell Joseph as a slave. He's sent down to the land of Egypt, where he becomes a slave of a man named Potiphar. Potiphar is rich and successful in Egypt, and Joseph is very successful in Potiphar's house. Everything that he does goes well. And so Joseph is eventually promoted to being the top slave in Potiphar's household. Joseph runs the house of this wealthy, elite Egyptian man. And he does the job so well that he catches the attention of Potiphar's wife, who tries to seduce him again and again. And Joseph consistently says no, because he's a man of integrity. And then one day, Potiphar's wife catches Joseph alone. She again tries to seduce him. He says no and runs away. And she grabs his coat, starts screaming, and accuses him of trying to rape her. Joseph, this man who's sold by slavery into his brothers, now has a lie told about him so that he gets sent to prison as an attempted rapist. And again, once he gets to prison, he's a man of integrity. He prospers. He does well. He's put in charge of overseeing the other prisoners. And one day, two prisoners come to the prison who both work for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And they both have dreams. They, they're talking about their dreams. Joseph tells them, your dream means that you're going to get your job back working for Pharaoh. Your dream means that you're going to die. And hey, you, the guy getting your job back, when you get your job back, remember me. I'm stuck here on false charges. I should not be in here. I have some skills that could be useful to Pharaoh, like interpreting dreams. So tell him about me. And the guy says, yeah, of course I will. Of course, the dream comes true. The man gets his job back and he forgets about Joseph for years and years. So Joseph, again, wrongly imprisoned, has to stay in prison for years and years longer than necessary. Until the day that Pharaoh himself has a dream and he wants to know what it means. So he asks all of his advisors, no one knows. And all of a sudden, this man who had met Joseph in the prison says, I can't believe what I have done. There's a man in prison. He can interpret dreams. I was supposed to tell you about him years ago, but I forgot. But go get him out of prison. He'll tell you what your dream means. So Pharaoh gets Joseph out of prison. They clean him up because he was a little scruffy from being in prison. And Joseph tells Pharaoh, here's what your dream means. There's going to be seven good years of lots of prosperity in the land, seven bad years of terrible famine. Here's what you need to do. Put someone responsible and trustworthy in charge of collecting food in the coming seven years so that when we have seven bad years, we have enough to eat and we don't all starve and die. And Pharaoh says, that's a great idea. I can't think of anyone better for the job than you. And Joseph overnight goes from being in prison to being in charge number two overall in the land of Egypt. He leads this campaign where they collect food over the course of seven years. And then at the end of seven years, the famine hits. There's no more food, not just in Egypt, but in the whole surrounding area. So everyone is coming to Egypt to get food from Joseph. And who should turn up there? The 10 men, the 10 older brothers who sold Joseph as a slave into the land of Egypt. And he recognizes them and he does a test to see whether they've changed or whether they're still fundamentally the same as they were all along. And they pass the test that we discussed this last week with Judah offering his life to rescue their brother Benjamin's life. 
And Joseph reveals himself to his family. He says, look, I'm Joseph. I'm the one you sold into slavery, but don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. Bring the whole family down here. We'll give you great land. We'll make sure you're fed. We'll make sure that you're taken care of. Everything's going to be fine for you. The family comes down to Egypt. They're settled. They're provided for. And that's the story of Joseph up until today's passage. Today's passage in Genesis chapter 50 happens 17 years later. So the famine's over, things are back to normal. The family has just stayed in Egypt because they've got some good connections there. And Joseph has been taking care of them. But 17 years after the family arrives in Egypt, Jacob, the father of the 12 sons, dies. And when he dies, the older brothers are afraid. They're afraid because they think that Joseph has just been playing nice with them in order to keep their dad from getting mad at him. And now that dad's out of the way, Joseph is going to use his power to destroy them because how could he not be bitter and angry against them for how horribly they treated him years ago? So they send a message, supposedly from their father, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And they tell Joseph, your dad's dying, dish, dying wish was for you to be nice to us after he's gone. And what does Joseph do? Well, let's look at Joseph's decision. Think about this. How would you respond if you were in Joseph's position? Remember, your brothers sold you as a slave, which in that day and age was basically sentencing you to an early death. All the mistreatment you've received since then of being falsely accused of rape, of being forgotten in prison, everything bad that has happened to you in life is a result of what they did to you, first and foremost. And now, they're sending you a message, supposedly from your father, but quite likely not. Quite likely, this is a lie that they've made up to continue trying to manipulate you. How are you going to respond in this situation? And realize, wanting revenge in this situation, it, it's normal to the human heart. There's a reason Joseph's brothers assumed that would be his response, because that would have been any of their responses, and it probably would be a lot of our responses. If you do a quick Google search, it can tell you a list of crazy revenge stories from throughout history. Did you know that when he was young, Julius Caesar was kidnapped by pirates? They demanded a ransom. He got upset because... They didn't charge enough. He said, I'm way more important than you think I am. Ask for more money. And by the way, once my friends pay it, I'm going to come back and kill you. His friends paid the ransom, rescued him. He got out, collected a group of soldiers, went back to the island where the pirates hid out, and killed every single pirate who's involved in kidnapping him. That's what humanity wants to do when someone wrongs us. We want to be like Caesar and go back and kill the pirates. When someone treats us like Joseph's brothers treated him. We want the revenge that Caesar got. And yet that's not what Joseph does. He wholeheartedly forgives his brothers and offers to provide for them and take special care for them throughout the rest of their life. And when I think about what I would do if I was in Joseph's situation, you know, as a pastor, I'd love to say I would wholeheartedly forgive the people who had done me wrong, just like Joseph. <sighs> Probably that's not true. Probably that's not how I would respond. You know, there would be this part of me that would be like, it's good to forgive them. 
I will forgive them, but I'm going to make them suffer a little bit first. When they come to me and ask for forgiveness, ask me to let them off the hook, I'm just going to say, let me think about it for a few days and just let them wonder, what's he going to do? Is he going to, is he going to forgive us? Is he going to kill us? Is he going to make our lives miserable? What's going to happen? But that's not what Joseph does. Look, look how Joseph responds when the brothers show up before him, begging him on their faces for forgiveness. It's in verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Notice Joseph in this story is the one who has suffered more than any of his brothers. His suffering has been all their fault. And now he's in a position of power where he can be the one to make them weep. And that's not what happens. Joseph is the one who weeps. Joseph is the one who's sad at the thought that his brothers could expect him to be so heartless towards them. He's sad because they, they don't truly know and understand who he is. They don't understand that he's been taking care of them, not because he's afraid of his father, but because he genuinely wants his family to do well. He forgives them. He, he sets them free from whatever they owe to him. And I want us to take some time to examine the question, how can he do that? After everything that he suffered at their expense, how can he forgive them? And to understand that, we need to look at Joseph's perspective. How is Joseph able to forgive them after suffering so much at their hands in his life? It's because of his perspective. Look what he says in his speech to them in, in verse 19. And 20. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, Joseph sees, yes, his brother's actions were evil, but they weren't the only ones acting in his story. On a deeper level, God was also acting. And yes, the brother's actions and God's actions both brought Joseph down the same path in life. God's motivation for bringing him there was good. God brought him down this path with the goal of saving lives and blessing others through him. In the great irony of the story, like, think about this. This is the story. Joseph's brothers, when they sold him as a slave, they thought they were sending him to an early death. But actually, them sending him to that potentially early death is what saved all their lives. If they had not done that, they would have all starved to death in the famine. Joseph, yes, he had to suffer, but it kept the family alive and many other people alive because of that. And yes, he had to suffer for a long time because of what the brothers did to him. But now he has the perspective where he can look back over his life and he can see God's hand at work every step of the way. He knows that the things he's suffered are not just the consequence of human sin, they're not just the consequence of cruel fate, but it's actually the consequence of God's goodness and God's plan to bless him and to bless others through him. And notice how liberating this perspective is for Joseph. I once read a quote that holding on to anger and bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to suffer. Like how many of us at one point or another in our lives have just held on to anger and bitterness because someone 
hurt us and we cannot let go of it. I've done that. And when I hold on to anger and bitterness against other people, here's what happens. I get stressed. I lose sleep and lie awake at night because I'm so upset. I'm grumpy. My stomach gets messed up and I'm just a miserable person to be around. I actually suffer more than anyone else when I hold on to anger and bitterness. I think, you know, we hold, we get angry in the first place and that anger turns to bitterness because people do things that violate our sense of justice. We feel like there's this scale of justice that's supposed to be upheld in our lives and someone did something that just knocked us down like that. And we think that if I can just do something, it'll, it'll bring it back into balance. It'll make things right. Maybe even put me a little higher than them. And we, in our anger and bitterness, think that that is the path to level the scales, but that's not true. The truth is the more that I cling to anger and bitterness, the further down I'm pushing myself. Bitterness and anger and desire for revenge don't bring the scale back into balance. They just drop my side of the scale lower and lower and make it worse. The only way to bring the scale back into balance is by breaking that cycle and choosing to forgive. And in order for us to forgive, to let go of our angriness and bitter, we need to have Joseph's perspective in our own lives. So let's talk about how to get Joseph's perspective. And let me just first point out the key to getting Joseph's perspective in our lives of seeing God at work in the things that we suffer and the things that go wrong is not just to tell ourselves, do it this way. You know, if someone hurts me and I'm angry about it and I just say to myself, I shouldn't be angry, that doesn't get rid of my anger. Actually, what that does is adds guilt and shame to my anger because now I'm not only angry, but I feel bad about being angry. And so I end up worse off than I was before, even more upset, even more just feeling low and bad about myself and the world and the situation and it's miserable. And so the key is not just to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, try better, do better. This is the way it's supposed to be. No, in fact, the key to getting Joseph's perspective isn't about looking or f- looking at or focusing on ourselves at all. The key to Joseph's perspective is getting our attention off of ourselves and onto God. And seeing God properly when we do that. And what is that proper perspective of God that we need to have in order to see the world this way? Well, it's the perspective that Joseph has that God is at work in every part of our lives, even the worst moments, to bring good for us and the people around us. It's the perspective that God is at work in every part of our lives, even the worst moments, to bring good for us and the people around us. And I want to just take a few minutes to dig into what that perspective does and doesn't mean, because if you don't understand it properly, you can take it in some bad directions. So we're just going to clarify, okay? So the first thing, Joseph's perspective does not mean that we should ignore or overlook human evil because God works it for good. No, when it comes to human evil, we need to, if we're Christians and we believe in God who is just, we need to be willing to name human evil as evil and not just brush it under the carpet. I think there's two two common wrong responses to evil in the world today. 
And Joseph's perspective actually guards against both of them. First, especially in Christian circles, we can put such an emphasis on being nice that we refuse to call evil evil. And let me clarify, like, yes, we're called to love others if we're Christians. And yes, loving others will often look like being nice. But also we serve a God who is just. We serve a God who has a standard, who calls us to live in a certain way, and who calls us to to stand up for what is right and true and to recognize evil as evil. When Joseph's brothers come to him in this passage, the nice Christian thing for him to say is, oh, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. But that's not true. Realize when I said nice Christian just a minute ago, that was that was a, a facetious nice Christian thing. That That's not actually the proper Christian response. What Joseph does, notice, he acknowledges that what his brothers did was evil. As for you, you meant evil against me. He's not sugarcoating it. He's not saying it's no big deal. He's saying it's a really big deal. And so Joseph's perspective gives us the grounds to say human evil is evil and avoid that first wrong response. But then there's the second wrong response. And the second wrong response is to acknowledge, yes, human evil is evil, but because of the evil that you've done to me, I can never forgive you. People who have this perspective, let the sin that was done against them define them moving into the future which is also a wrong response because it actually holds you captive. If, if you're sinned against and you feel like your sin, the, the sin that was done against you is so extreme that you can never forgive, it never gives you the chance to f- be free of defining yourself based on what was done to you. You're in essence somehow saying the evil that was done to me is somehow ultimate. It can never be overcome. And as if you're a Christian, that's to deny the power of the gospel. Because the gospel says the sin of ourselves and the sin of others is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. Jesus has overcome all sin that we have done and all sin that has been done against us. And so a proper Christian response, like Joseph has in this story, acknowledges that human evil is truly evil, but at the same time gives a power to forgive it because human evil is not ultimate. God and his love and his forgiveness are. And so that's what we see in Joseph's response. He acknowledges that his brothers were wrong in what they did. And yet at the same time, he releases them from the debt that they owe him. He's not brushing off their sin as no big deal. He's not defining himself as a victim. He's instead seeing himself as part of God's bigger story. He's seeing his suffering as a tool that God is using to bless others. And even though, yes, there was real human evil involved in that, he's able to move on from defining himself by that because he knows that evil isn't ultimate because God is at work in the midst of it. Second clarification about Joseph's perspective. This perspective doesn't mean God's out of control when bad things happen, then steps in to fix them and make them good later on. You know, I, I don't, I'm not on social media anymore. I used to be. And so I'm not going to have the exact wording of this post 
right? But that's okay. A few years back, some tragedy happened. I don't remember what the tragedy was, but if you're on social media, I'm sure you've seen people post on social media things like, oh, terrible that this thing happened, but we know that God has a plan in the midst of it and blah, blah, blah. Well, I had a friend who apparently got tired of those types of posts, felt like it was bad that people are blaming God for this tragedy. And so he got on and he made a post saying something along the lines of, God was not responsible for this thing that happened. The God of the Bible would never be responsible for something so tragic as this. And that response, my friend's response, sounds really nice on the surface, but it's actually terrifying. And it's not what Joseph is saying here. And it's so important for us to realize that. This perspective sounds nice on the surface, but it's terrifying because it means that in the worst moments of our lives, the moments where we're suffering terribly, the times where we most need God's presence with us, at exactly those moments, God has stepped off his throne and given up power and control in our lives. What could be more terrifying than that? Joseph is not saying that. Look what he says. You meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. He doesn't say God used it for good, as in God was off the throne in that moment, came back, saw what you had done and was like, let me fix this. No, God meant it for good. The, the whole process was being orchestrated by God to bring about the ends that he wanted. God was in control throughout every step of the evil that happened to Joseph. Let me say that again, because that's super important. God was in control throughout every step of the evil that happened to Joseph. Now, this doesn't mean that God was evil. We'll get to that in a moment. But it means that God was in charge, even in the worst moments. Joseph's perspective means knowing that God is sovereign and in control over everything, even human acts of evil, and that he's actively working to bring good out of them. He doesn't just step in to fix it later on because he's out of control and bad things happen. No. He's actively at work in the midst of the bad things that are happening to accomplish good purposes in them and through them. Which brings us to our third clarification. Joseph's perspective does not mean that God is guilty or in the wrong when bad things happen under his control. You know, some people, like my friend, they assume if God is responsible somehow for bad things happening, then it must mean that, that God is guilty of doing something wrong. And that's not what Joseph sees here in today's passage. He sees his brothers acting. He sees God acting through the same series of events, but the brothers are guilty while God is good. How is that possible? Because of their motivation. Joseph's brothers, they just want to harm him. They just want to get him out of their lives. But God can see the bigger picture. And God, through their evil, is actually working to save lives. 
Think about the steps that need to happen in order for Joseph to save lives in this famine. Joseph needs to get to Egypt. How does that happen? His brothers sell him as a slave, sinfully. Joseph needs to learn administrative skills so that he can be competent in his role overseeing the country. And how does he learn that? By being a slave and by running the prison. Again, results of human evil, but they're equipping and preparing Joseph for this great role that God has for him. Joseph needs to get connected to Pharaoh. How is that going to happen? Well, he meets the guy who works for Pharaoh in prison. And how does Joseph get to prison? He's falsely accused of rape. So actually, this false accusation is part of God's plan to bring Joseph to a place where he will eventually be introduced to Pharaoh so that he can save lives. Every step of the process that happens to Joseph as a result of human evil is actually also the result of God's goodness. It's the result of God working to prepare Joseph for this role of saving lives and preparing Joseph to be able to really appreciate and enjoy the blessings that are going to come to him later because he'll be competent to handle them. Now, as I say this, I'm not saying we should be those people who try to find the secret reason for everything that bad that happens in life. I'm sure you've, if you've been around church long enough, you've met one of those people who's like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you got cancer, but here's how God's going to use it so you can be happy about having cancer. Like, no, often we can't see what God's going to do in a bad situation until long after the fact. And so please don't be that guy. But having this perspective means that when God allows bad things to happen to us in the short term, we can have hope and faith and confidence knowing that he's only allowing bad things in the short term for the sake of doing good long term. And that's not just something that's true of Joseph. It's true in our lives as well. In one of my first jobs when I was really young, I had a terrible conversation with my boss where he falsely accused me of being part of a conspiracy to get him fired. I was livid. I almost quit my job on the spot. It was one of the worst days of my professional career. And there was some evil going on there. But having the perspective of several years now, I can look back and I say what, what my boss meant for evil, God meant for good. Because I think, I could be wrong, but I think without that conversation, I don't think I'd be here at the bridge today in a role that I love. I hope you love having me here too. Because here's what God did through that conversation. It, it led me on a process of, of reflecting. I talked with a friend about it and was just complaining about how could my boss be so terrible and mean and unjust and make this accusation against me. And my friend pointed out like, Eric, do you think when your boss was your age, he, he had a goal of being this type of an insecure and accusatory boss? I said, no, I don't, I don't think most people set out to be that way. My friend said, yeah, but realize he ended up there. And so what are the things in your life that if you don't deal with them are going to lead you to become like him someday? And it set me on this process of just reflection and learning to, to listen to others in a way that I had not been good at before. 
and learning to empathize with others and care for them and actually learning to be much better of a, a pastor and not just a, a worker or a thinker. And that, that, that process of processing that conversation and, and dealing with the fallout of it also gave me a perspective that when I got to my next job, you know, I'm a millennial. I was raised that you from day one should be able to love what you're doing and change the world at it in any job, anywhere, which we laugh at because it's ridiculous and not true, but that's what I was taught to believe and expect. And so when I got to my next job after that first one, things started happening that disappointed me, that let me down, that weren't quite what I was expecting from the job. But I was always able to look back at that previous job and say, you know what? No matter how bad things are here, I know that it could be worse. And so I can persevere and stick it out and endure. And, and through that, I was able to grow again in my love for others and my humility and my ability to, to do things in the church that need to be done in the church and to form the connections that eventually brought me to the bridge. I don't think that I would be here today. I don't think I would have stuck it out long enough in Hong Kong if I had not had that conversation with that boss that was so horrible that, that he meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I can say in my own life, what, what he meant evil against me, God meant it for good. And in fact, God working for good through human evil, it's one of his main ways of operating in the world. And think about the most evil act of human history, the murder of Jesus, the murder of God. Was that evil? Of course that was evil. Was, let me ask you this, was God responsible for the death of Jesus? In case you're wondering, let me, let me read you a couple of verses that will clarify the answer to this. First, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, so it's part of God's plan, God is responsible, you, the people he's speaking to, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Look what's happening there. This is God's plan, but human evil is accomplishing it. And then a couple chapters later, Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. The, the apostles are praying and they say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They're praying and they're saying, God, these people came together to do evil, but as they were doing evil, all they were doing was accomplishing your plan for salvation. What they meant for evil, you meant for good, so that many lives could be saved. See, Jesus, he's actually the true and better Joseph. He's the one who, who came, appointed by God to rule, but was rejected and sold sold out by those who were supposed to love him and care for him. Like Joseph, he was falsely accused of crimes he didn't commit. Rather than being sent to prison, though, Jesus was sent to execution. But like with Joseph, that sentence was not the end of his story because God raised him up. Not just from prison to the palace, but from death to life. And he 
God did it so that lives could be saved. Only with Joseph, the lives that were saved were human lives fed by bread that stayed alive for a few more years. But with Jesus, the lives that are saved are transformed lives that now get to spend eternity with God. Just like with Joseph, God used Jesus' sufferings for good. God transformed the narrative. He used human evil for the sake of accomplishing his good purposes. And at the end of the day, having the perspective of Joseph comes from knowing Jesus. comes from knowing what God has done for us in and through Jesus and seeing God work out this pattern of using human evil for our good and the good of others over and over and over again. We're not going to be able to love and forgive others like Joseph did until we know our eternity is secure because our God suffered and endured evil for the sake of forgiving us for our evil. But once we get that, it's going to liberate us to forgive others for the suffering that they have caused us. So church, how does your perspective need to change today? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there a situation in life where you need to let go of your anger and bitterness over past hurts and trust God to work in your situation? If you are his child, all God's plans and purposes for you are in the long run for your good. Will you believe that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of human evil and terrible suffering, you are working for good. And God, I don't say that as some throwaway way of ignoring or downplaying suffering, but God, I, I say that as an acknowledgement of your power, because you are so great. Thank you that you work in the midst of, of the worst situations to bring about good and blessing for your people. And I pray that you would teach us to trust in you this week, to love you, to love and forgive others because of the way that we've been forgiven by you. In Jesus' name, amen.